0: The scripture reading tonight is Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
1: Amen. Oh, could you guys actually? I'm just messing. Just sit down. You're good. Hey, my name's Glenn. Uh, wow. This is a special, special night for me. As Andrew said, I've got some great background with your lead pastors. I love your lead pastors. I trust them, respect them. Uh, in many ways, the words that they speak, I am quick to listen to. And uh, especially now, as I venture out to team up with a, another pastor and plant a church up in northwest Omaha, um, I love watching the story that has unfolded at Providence Church. I was in the room at a, uh interest meeting one time where Andrew and Jared were we're in there, and there was a you know some interested people, and that was the extent of Providence Church. This is like four years ago, uh, and to see now, God has saved people. God has had you've been able to celebrate baptisms, to see God bring lost people into the family of God, into spiritual community, uh, to know that many of you have matured in your faith uh, because of the labor of all the different people that are in the body of Christ here. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing to see. Uh, What God has done, and so thank you for letting me uh, have your pulpit for a night and entrusting me to be a steward of God's word. Uh, We are we're in the second week of a four part series that is examining the core value of yes, Providence Church, but also uh, the Christian faith. It's the gospel. It's the, the 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 good news that Jesus has come, and He has lived, He's died, and He's risen again. And it is the thing that is of first importance to the Christian faith. And uh, I, I want to start by way of introduction by asking you to just think in your mind about the time that you've spent with uh, kids that are like preschool and elementary school age. Um, I have, my wife and I, Kate, we have 12 nieces and nephews combined and uh, more coming we have a two-year-old daughter, Savannah, and then we have a, an, another daughter that's actually on the way. Literally, my wife could pop at any moment. I have notes written down here in case I get a call and Jared needs to just read the rest of this sermon for me. Um, but, but y'all know if you spend any time with kids, you have to be ready to verbally process a lot of things with them, right? They, they're very curious about everything that they see and hear. They, they want to grow in their knowledge and, uh, and understand Uh, all that surrounds them. And I want to actually paint a picture. So it it goes from like one-word questions when they're really young. That's like snack, 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 all the way to questions that kids don't even realize are profound. Like, how is God everywhere? Right? And to show you data, just to back up what I'm saying, any caretaker or parent or teacher in the room doesn't even need to hear this kids, young kids ask on average 100 to 300 questions a day. A day, 100 to 300 questions. Now, as we age, our questions do become uh, a little bit more particular, maybe to our life stage or, you know, our season of life or our field of study, whatever it might be. Uh, For instance, my wife, Kate, when she was 10 years old, she was not looking at consumer reports for household appliances or, you know, reviews online for maternity wear, right? And, as we age, also our questions become more complex. There is probably not any normal 5-year-old right now in the world who is wanting to analyze COVID-19 data and figure out the global economic impact that that will have. And yet, we remain asking basic, essential questions about life all the time. Do I have any true friends? Am I loved and accepted? Am I worthy of respect and admiration? Am I making the best decisions? Do I have the right career field? Am I becoming all I'm meant to be? Am I happy with my life? You you always have been, and you always will be, seeking answers to questions. I I just want to ask, do you feel exhausted by that at all? To think about all of the internal anxious thoughts and questions that, you know, maybe are not less than what a kid would say verbally, But at the same amount, we're just asking them right here. What if I told you tonight that the Christian scriptures, the Bible, seem to ask one foundational, essential question, both implicitly and explicitly, and it arguably holds the most weight. And what if I told you that having confidence in the answer to that question will actually give you the only thing you need before you ask any other question? question. Here it is. Here's the question. It's captured in Job chapter 9, verse 2. How can someone be made right with God? Another translation would say, how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? And yet another translation would say, how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight? Church, let this this sink in. What good is it for a person to have all the, the thoughts and the opinions and the speculation and the answers in the world and yet be at odds with God, not right with Him, and without an answer to that problem. I want you to know tonight the answer to the question, how can a person be made right with God, is the difference between a life of exhaustion and religious obligation and a life of peace Rest and joy. So, turn with me, if you will. If you have a device, if you have a a physical Bible with you, Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. I'm going to move over slightly. Uh, I've titled this sermon tonight "In a Desperate Place: A Display of Grace." In a desperate place, a display of grace. just to, to set this up, the, the, the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans. So Paul, let's talk about him first, the author. Paul is a, a man who actually he persecuted and imprisoned Christians before he had a personal supernatural um, encounter with the risen Jesus. And his life was forever changed. Not only did he begin to worship Jesus as God, but he gave the rest of his life. He, he ran a race And he was committed to completing the task that God gave him to testify to the good news of what Jesus had done. But more particular for our case tonight, um, Paul was a really religious, devout, and rule-keeping man. Paul would have been a brilliant writer and thinker, a respected and revered leader. He was someone who many people looked up to and really hard for them to find any fault in him. He worked diligently to keep God's laws... He did the best of his ability. He was, by every definition, an exemplary human being. And yet, this is the man who spends the first two and a half chapters of this book of Romans defining the true human condition, telling us just how uh, virtuous and moral we really are. And this is really, really difficult to ignore, Because God's Spirit is working through the pen of an exceptional man to show his readers how unexceptional he and we may actually be. Uh, Okay, COVID is a thing that's affected all of us in really personal ways. For me, uh, I stopped playing basketball. I was playing at least two times a week, every week. Love playing basketball. Uh, And then I took like four months off didn't touch a basketball. I ended up at another church, and I had a basketball in my hands, and it did not feel as familiar as I anticipated that it would. I thought it would be like riding a bike. All of a sudden, my dribbling is a little bit off. My eye-hand coordination is off. This is a true story, Providence. I stood with a friend of mine at the three-point line and shot 16 times before the ball actually went through the hoop. Sometimes things are not as good as we think they are initially, right? Or, or take this. My wife, anytime we have uh, friends or family come into town and I need to do some cleaning around our house, she asks me, would, you know, would you be willing to help with this? And, and the answer, because I'm, I'm so servant-hearted, is absolutely. And so I, I, uh, I look at kind of, I take inventory of, of our house, and, uh, and I think, okay, 20 to 30 minutes, like I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and just knock this out. And three hours later, with another hour to go, sweaty, and I've run out of podcasts to listen to, and somehow the list has gotten longer of things to clean, what I initially thought was not actually true, right? Or take this on a a heavier note. My brother, my older brother Aaron, he's he's alive and well now, thriving, doing great with a family. But when I was in high school, he got in a jet ski accident. And my brother, I thought, had just, you know, fallen off of his jet ski or you know, run against a dock or something like that. And maybe he had an injured lung or an injured leg and he would be fine. But our family kept getting phone calls. Phone calls that said, hey, it's actually worse than than we thought. He's unconscious. Hey, he had to get taken by a helicopter to a local med center. Hey, his lung is punctured. He can't breathe on his own. We haven't hooked up to a machine. Hey, there's actually a 50, 50% chance that he survives this. Hey, if he does survive, there's actually a 70% chance that he would have some brain damage. Sometimes things, whether big or small, are not as good as we think they are initially. While positive thinking is a great thing, often reality in life can confront that and diffuse that in some sense. And I want to say tonight, Providence, so it is with our human nature. So it is with where we stand naturally before God. In a culture that now more than ever pushes a a narrative that we uh, have... You know, inherent goodness, deep, deep down inside. And we need to tap further and further and get rid of all the things that are covering that up so that we can really discover the golden, you know, gem and gift to the world that exists underneath that. God's Word doesn't tell that story. Consider with me in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world... In the things that have been made. So, in in humans. So, humans are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Jump down to to verse 32 of the same passage. And right after Paul has described the, the unrighteousness, the sin that is in people, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree... That those who practice such things deserve to die. They, They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul is describing Providence, a church in which many may acknowledge God, but they deliberately and consciously choose to ignore or reject Him. Specifically, their place under Him. Instead of serving and honoring and loving the one who has made us and experiencing the joy that comes in that, we've decided that we're more worthy than he is of describing the, the boundaries and, and the design of our life. Fast forward to chapter 3 of Romans, and starting in verse 11, Paul echoes the Psalms, where we all just spent 10 weeks together. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. And he goes even further. No one understands, no one even seeks for God. He's saying no human being actually has a moral, acceptable record before God. No one even looks for him or seeks after him. That's not our natural inclination. And finally, he captures what I think is the reason for much of this in chapter 3, verse 18. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's how this looks right now, today. It looks like a lot of people assuming a whole lot about God. That our living against his will, our dismissing of his law, will merely result in him being a little bit upset or disappointed, but certainly not, not that he would ever do anything about that. It looks like us assuming that uh, he would never actually want us to feel accountable to the rights that he has over us as the one who has created us. And if you would allow me to echo Dwight Schrute from The Office, false, false. Church, our God reveals himself to be a just God. He is a good and holy and righteous God. There is no place for sin before him. He describes himself in the book of Exodus. He says, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so how is it that we have a God that can be both merciful to sinners, but also exact justice? We're going to see the answer to that. But first, I want to tell you about me. Uh, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so my whole life really revolved around church. All of my friends were Christians. Um, my parents were obviously believing. I was well-behaved. I was respectful of others. I memorized some Bible verses. Um, Jared's nodding his head, saying yes. Didn't have sex. Didn't watch any R-rated movies. I did not get into a lot of trouble. Uh, I would say I lived a pretty innocent life. And this was my, in retrospect, unspoken hypothesis. This was what might be yours, too, right now, if if you think about it. If I'm relatively good, God will forgive as he should. If I'm relatively good, God will forgive as he should. And that was the sum and substance of my Christian faith. But as a college student, things changed. It was really, really difficult for me to to start believing that I was relatively good. I started to to understand and perceive that I maybe wasn't as worthy of honor and, and respect and admiration from God that I thought. I started reading His Word. And if God's laws, the commands we find in His Word, were a picture of good and righteous human living... Then all I had to do was hold up his word as a mirror and look at myself and realize how, fall, how far I was from that. It was harder and harder to even dismiss that I'd fallen far from that because I, I, I was, you know, getting drunk underage. I had a porn addiction. Um, I was illegally smoking. I was cheating in my classroom. There was laziness in, in my heart, irresponsibility, anger, unforgiveness, selfishness, greed, all the things that welled up and became words and actions that I I can never take back. Listen, your Bible may not be what you think it is. God's commands, His law, don't miss this, they do not serve as a formula for you to follow so that you can be cleared of guilt in God's sight. Let me say that one more time, Providence, in case there's any confusion The law in God's word does not serve as a formula for you to follow in order that you might be cleared of guilt in God's sight. I actually want to show you right here in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20. This is how Paul defends that. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And then he says this, Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There are many ways that the law in your Bible functions. But one of the biggest things that it does is it serves to show us that we are worse off than we thought we were. Our sin providence, it runs deep. Have you lost hope yet? (laughs) Are you discouraged yet as we're talking about this right now? See, I think God goes to great lengths to show us this. Because to borrow from Tim Keller, we are more sinful... And flawed than we would ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. I think that some of you need some, some good news. Um, you, you need the gospel, because that's the answer to the question of how a person is seen right with God, how in His sight they can be declared innocent. The answer is the gospel, and Paul delivers it right in the next verses. Listen to this. I'm going to read it again. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament of your Bible, bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he's saying there is no distinction between people. All have fallen short. All have sinned but are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God has done for us what we could never dream to do for ourselves. He has shown us a way to be right with him without keeping the requirements of his commands. That almost sounds too good to be true. Even though we've sinned, even though we've fallen short of his standard, he's given us a way to be justified, to be declared righteous, declared innocent before him. And it is totally, utterly a gift of grace. Nothing that can be earned by us. See, when Jesus came into the world, the angel announced at his very birth that he will save his people from their sins. The first public declaration made about Jesus Christ was, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus himself said that he came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And just before his crucifixion, just before the cross, Jesus said, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay down my life by my choice. And he would. See, Jesus would live without fault. He would be kind and selfless and honorable. He would love people instead of objectifying them. He would respond to anger and hate with patience and wisdom. He was always concerned with the needs of others before his own. He never uttered a lie, manipulated anyone. He was gentle and lowly and humble to the point of death. He was Holy and good in every sense. Do you know what Jesus was? He was truly innocent before God. He was the one person who's ever walked the earth that was without sin, and he stands alone in that category. Before God's judgment, Jesus was righteous. And don't, don't miss this. Although Jesus was God in the flesh, he was fully man, which enabled him to be our substitute. It enabled him to stand in our place in front of us, living the life that we could not live that meets God's mark. You see, even if all of us in here right now in this room, passionately committed tonight, we will never sin again. Not only do we all know that that is impossible, but it doesn't account for the sin of our past. Jesus stands in our place and not only is our substitute in life, but Jesus is our substitute in death. Our passage says that it was Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. What that means is that Jesus fell under the wrath of God in our place so that we don't have to. God could maintain his justice while being merciful to us. Our passage says that he could be just and the justifier by pouring his wrath out on Jesus instead of us. The gospel is this. It's that God delivered to his son what was owed to us, so that he might deliver to us what was truly owed to Jesus. And that is really really good news. How does a person get right before God by believing in trusting in having faith in the person and work of Jesus? Christians, let me let me talk to you for a second because I I want you to understand how this gospel of justification actually has real implications for your life. Uh, just this last week, my wife and I, we uh, couldn't do this, this uh, assessment physically, so we hopped on to a church planting assessment where they, they kind of help determine, hey, are you fit to be a church planter and pastor? Are you ready to actually step into our network of church planters? And, and join this this coalition. And so for two days on Zoom, like imagine Zoom for two days from like 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever, um, we just had call after call after call being drilled with every kind of question you can imagine about our mental and spiritual health, about our marriage and our home life, about my leadership experience and the fruit of my ministry and about preaching and communication and, and everything you can imagine. And this is... What, this is why I talk about this. Before we hopped on to our first Zoom call the first morning, I, I was so nervous. Um, you know, I made sure that even though I was sitting in my own bed at home, <laughs> that I had, like, khaki shorts on that they would never see, that I had a, a, a nice shirt on, that I looked well-groomed, my teeth were brushed, you know, nothing that they would be able to notice through my 2013 MacBook webcam, Right? But I felt inclined to, to prove my worth and, and to bring, you know, the best that I could. I remember thinking of the questions that they would ask us and sort of anticipating those questions and wondering, okay, how would I answer that? How would I phrase, you know, my thoughts about that? What if they challenged this? You know, how would I speak back to that and entertain that dialogue? and you know, how's my wife going to do, or are we going to, you know, are they going to think that we have a, you know, we mesh well, and and all this kind of stuff, and I say all of that because it's just a very recent example of something that's so common to your life and mine, so much of our life is presenting our record of performance in order to validate our acceptance, when you've interviewed for a job, or a degree program, uh, when you've tried to qualify for a home loan, or get your kids accepted into a school, when you've auditioned for a part, you've tried out for a team, when you've dated someone, and you kind of want them to know at the start, like the best things about you, and reserve those things that maybe uh, are not so great uh, when you've been asked to preach at Providence Church on a Sunday night. That's just me. Um, this is deeply ingrained in us so much that we haul it with us into our relationship with God and our activity in the church. And even though justification says stop achieving, there's nothing you can achieve. Receive. Start receiving from Jesus what he's done for you. Even though we've died with Christ and and it's no longer about us but about him living through us, we aren't trusting of that. And instead we try harder to do more and be better. And because real sin still exists in us, we're prone to self-worship. We would never say it out loud, but we all do it. We associate our Christian activity... And disciplines and persona and words with a sense of self earned acceptance. And here's how this plays out. Maybe you can relate. Some weeks I feel great, other weeks I feel shame. Some weeks I feel strong, and other weeks I, I feel weak. Some weeks I trust God, other weeks I don't. Some weeks I'm at peace and secure in my relationship with Him. Other weeks I, I'm fearful of where I really actually stand with Him. Some weeks I'm content and I'm strong in my identity. Other weeks, I feel like I need to, to really work hard to prove my worth and value. Some weeks, what Jesus accomplished is finished and it's final. And some weeks, he got me through the door, but I need to figure out how to stay here. What's happening here? Why this roller coaster of faith? Here it is the lie of self earned acceptance breeds the lie of self lost acceptance. If we can't rest in God's grace to us as Christian people, we will never escape the feeling that he is disapproving of us or ashamed of us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Christian, knowing that you're made right with God is the difference between a life of exhaustion and a life of rest. Additionally, if you're a Christian, I will bet that you often drift in your service to the church and, and, and to other people from uh, joy and gladness to obligation, a begrudging obligation at that, but you would never show it. How do I know this? Because I do too. I do too. The thing that the gospel does for us is it shows us that Jesus loves us personally. It shows us that he gave himself for us, that his presence in us doesn't add burden to our life, but like Jared was talking about earlier, it relieves burden from our life. I'll never forget years ago when Jared actually preached a sermon, and he he said, it stuck with me forever, obviously, if you don't have a desire to worship God or share your faith with other people, it's because you need to remember your lostness. You need to remember where you were before you met Jesus. Can I just say, Christian, don't forget how far God has brought you by his grace. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget how generous he's been to look at you at your worst and to say, pointing at the cross, I love you that much. Take inventory of your place before God and the display of grace that he has made for his own glory Remember how much you love him because he first loved you. John Stott wrote, The cross of Christ is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. It's the cross of Christ that empowers us to to the biblical principle of serving with gladness. There's, There's a huge difference between a person who really pulled themselves up by their bootstrap. They're self-made and they needed God to kind of get them over a little bit of a roadblock in life. (laughs) And a person who says, I was dead in sin. God, I didn't even seek you or understand you. I was unrighteous in your sight. I was subject to your wrath and judgment, hell bound. And Jesus, you came and you lived and you died and you rose again and I placed my faith in you. And because of that, I have a relationship with God. That's two very different people who operate and serve and love other people out of a very different place. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to talk to you for a moment. Can I just tell you from my own story that what started me on a path toward understanding the good news of Jesus' work and placing my faith in him was not just that I had made some bad decisions and that I was experiencing the consequences of those decisions. All of us can relate to that. That sounds like normal life. But it was God, by His Spirit, beginning to open my eyes and my heart to my place before Him in the life that I was choosing to live apart from Him. He began to produce in me a sorrow over my sin and a sense of responsibility and accountability to His authority. And I think... In Psalm 51, David captures this posture very well. Right after a mess of sin and failure and mistakes in his life, he comes before God and he says, Oh Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Your judgment on me would be right. Please don't miss this. The humility required of a person can often be the biggest obstacle to Christian faith. One of the best indicators is that you're ready to receive God's grace, that you're ready to place your faith in Jesus is a sense of need to be reconciled to God. It's a longing and a sorrow in you that says you're not right with him, and it gives you a desire to do something about it, a desire to be forgiven, a desire to have relationship, a desire to be changed by him. If that's you tonight, can I just encourage you to trust in Jesus? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. No less than four times in our passage tonight, four times, justification is offered exclusively to people of faith in Jesus. People who trust that his sinless life and his death are enough to make them righteous in God's sight. Would you do that? In closing tonight, we always have been and we always will be seeking answers to our questions. I wonder why it is that our our thoughts and emotions are often dominated by things like whether our car is clean, Donald Trump's latest tweet, um, if my choice for lunch was the best one that I could have made today, if I can lose weight in time for that event that's coming up, when really it could be on the fact that Jesus saved sinners, that I was one of them, and that my life has been completely changed because I know my Savior. How is it, Providence, that we let the significance and the power of the core value of the Christian faith not occupy our minds and our hearts? How does it drift so easily? My hope for this church, my hope for every Christian, is that we would sing about the gospel we would talk about the gospel, go to bed thinking about it, pray about it, memorize it, read about the gospel, receive the gospel, preach the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of salvation for all who believe. And a church that does not believe in the gospel is a dead church. A church that does not start and finish with the gospel is a dead church praise God that Providence Church says our core value is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that that is unchanging and one of the things I'm excited for is that we've talked about new birth we've talked about justification and there's two more weeks to look at the gospel in its fullness and everything that God has afforded to us through his son I'm jealous I might come back and just sit and listen let's pray Jesus, we want to ask that you would forgive us tonight for our temptation to uh, think that we have heard this, we've thought about this, we've meditated on this, uh, we understand this, and we can move on from this. Oh God, draw your people back right now, even as we worship, to your throne, a place of incredible grace that's been unearned and given as a gift to people whose faith is in you. Jesus, draw us to you to show us that you came And you were our substitute in life and death. And when you were on the cross, you declared, it is finished. God, I pray right now that by your spirit, Providence Church would be filled with joy, would be filled with gladness, because Jesus, you have done something for us, the thing for us, in order to answer the question, how to have a relationship with you, God. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for being our justifier. Thank you for being true to your character We love you because you first loved us and it's in your name we
0: pray, amen.